Hello and welcome to The Libertarian Podcast. I'm your host, Troy Senek, joined as always by the libertarian himself, Professor Richard Epstein, Senior Fellow at the Hoover Institution, as well as Professor of Law at NYU and Senior Lecturer at the University of Chicago. Today, the GOP tax plan. And Richard, since you and I talked last, we have for the first time gotten an opening bid from Capitol Hill on a Republican tax reform package. We had the House of Representatives release their plan last week. As you and I record this, we're supposedly right on the cusp of the Senate releasing theirs. So why don't we start on the corporate side? Anyone who's listening to a show like this has heard this mantra for years. The U.S. has one of the highest corporate tax rates in the world at 35 percent. We've got to bring it down. Uh, the House plan would do so down to 25 percent. 20. 20 uh, percent. Now, Richard, what you will hear from some people um, – I've heard this a few times since this plan has been released – is a confusion wherein they'll say, how is it that I hear about these high rates – that these companies are supposedly paying. Yet I also hear these stories that crop up every few years about these corporations that pay almost nothing in taxes. Un unpack that for us. Well, it turns out that if you actually have the high rates domestically, what will happen is many companies will try to engage in what are sometimes called corporate inversions, which means what they'll do is they'll take their basic position and send that one overseas. And so what will happen is they'll take the advantage of the low tax rates elsewhere so, for example, those turn out to be about 12.5% um, when you're in Ireland. And when companies start to do that, they have to pay American tax rates on American earnings. But with respect to their global earnings, they get it at a much lower level. And then that creates the further problem is if they have to pay uh, the higher tax rates or differential to get you back to the higher tax rates, when they repatriate the money, they won't do it at all. So it will tend to sit overseas. And that opens up the way for all sorts of tax gimmicks, introducing third-party transactions and so forth, and to try to take advantage of some of the money inside the United States, at which point the Treasury puts on more protective rules and the whole thing starts to become very, very odd. Uh, so what you're seeing here is basically a fact uh, that these companies do respond to the incentives that they face. And one of the strong arguments in favor of the GOP bill on this point is if you see this massive exodus and corporate inversions taking place, it means that these incentive effects really do matter. So instead of treating this as a kind of an odd anomaly without an explanation, it is better treated as a fairly serious symptom of why it is that something has to be done in order to improve the overall uh, situation. So there's no puzzle in this particular case. These companies have a bunch of guys who have green eye shades, and they respond very accurately and very quickly to incentives. These are not people who make cognitive mistakes, numerical errors, or anything of the sort. And in some cases, I think their schemes are a bit illicit, like the one that Apple engaged in to try to pay no tax even under Irish rules, and I think they've been slapped down for it. But even if you put aside the abuse, the rate differential does attract these kinds of responses. One of the cases that those on the left love to make is that these are just typical Republican moves. You cut taxes for a bunch of wealthy CEOs and that if you think a cut like this is going to do anything for regular working people – then you're dreaming. How do you respond to arguments like those? Well, I mean, it turns out that there's a following 
obvious point is the growth rate that we've had in the United States over the last nine years, mostly of democratic rule, has been very, very low until the Trump administration came in where it perked up a bit, in part because they have a deregulatory frame of mind. In addition, if you start looking at the salaries under the current regime where you have the high corporate tax rates, it turns out that they're absolutely stagnant. And in fact, the recent headline in the Wall Street Journal went something like employment levels down to post-war low or something under war in 17 years, wages dead stagnant. And so what you have to do is to ask about the alternative policy against the admitted failure of the current policy. And the argument that is made on the other side is, I think, a pretty strong argument. In principle, if you give somebody a particular tax benefit, the only way that he could take advantage of that tax benefit is to enter into a whole variety of complex contractual arrangements, which will allow him to essentially use the free cash that he's gotten. Some of these would be devices to create new capital assets. Well, you want to build a capital asset, you have to hire people. And then it'll be to run businesses that have used those capital assets. And that means you have to hire more people. So the theory is going to be that at least some portion of this stuff will be passed back into the labor market. What is very difficult to determine is exactly which group of laborers will get this and which one's not. Um, the administration put out a reasonably serious uh, uh, white paper in which it said the median family earning about $83,000 a year could, when you reach steady state, expect to reach a tax increase of between four and $9,000, which is roughly about between 5 and 11%. These are serious numbers. They may be a little bit overstated, but I think the direction is surely correct. And in effect, they also did growth numbers. And what those growth numbers suggested is that the large, um, those countries with high corporate tax rates have considerably lower growth rates than those countries with lower kinds of tax rates. You've got to control for a bunch of other stuff, and you can't be sure that it's true. Uh, but the reason why these empirics make some sense is there's actually a theory behind them, which explains, in fact, that if you inject money into any one given place inside the economy, the people who receive it in order to get there true profits have to give cooperation with others. Uh, the other point is, of course, it's extremely difficult to figure out how you give additional tax breaks to people at the bottom end of the scale because they're paying very, very little in taxes. And indeed, their major tax burden is Social Security. So either you do it by indirection, uh, which I think has a chance of work, or create another huge subsidy program, which I think has real dangers of destabilizing the budget. Richard, in an effort to simplify the tax code, we've already seen that congressional Republicans want to jettison or at least cap some of the longstanding and popular deductions in the tax code, one of which is the deduction for interest on home mortgages. Now, as it currently stands, you can deduct home mortgage interest on a mortgage of up to a million dollars. This would not totally get rid of the deduction in this proposal, but it would lower it to half a million uh, we've talked before on the show about your dislike for the home mortgage interest deduction as a general principle. Are you satisfied with this compromise? No, I think in effect, if you're doing things by principle, what you want to do is to drive that particular number to zero. The basic intuition here is that the interest deduction should not be allowed because it's offset by the increased consumption that you have from the ownership and use of the capital asset which should help you to purchase. And in fact, if you could actually take all the imputed income from a house into your taxable income, which would require a lot of problems of measurement, then it would in fact be proper to deduct the interest that you pay in order to get that taxable consumption benefit. But since you can't take the consumption into income, it's best to deny the other 
part of this thing. And in fact, I draw a very sharp distinction between the home mortgage type deduction, which I'm strongly against, and the charitable deduction, where I think what you're trying to do is to figure out how to get rich people to give subsidies to all sorts of other people, um, universities, healthcare, churches, and so forth. And if you deny that deduction, what it's going to do is to lead to a greater concentration of support for these critical institutions by the government. And in my view, decentralized control by private parties who get essentially a matching grant from the government in the form of the deduction is appropriate. Interestingly enough, if you do what I would rather see done, which is to flatten the tax system, which the Republicans are loath to do, the size of that charitable subsidy will be reduced, which I don't think is a bad thing. And the charities, I think, will be better off because if you increase the size of the growth, it may well be that you get a smaller deduction. But on the other hand, you're likely to have a higher income. And if you have a higher income and greater wealth, then you're more likely to give a charitable deduction. Uh, So it may well be people will give larger amounts of money because they have more money, which will offset the problem with respect to these charitable institutions. Uh, So I think that's the way in which those two things really ought to work. I want to revisit for just a moment a topic that we mentioned the last time that we talked about this issue, which is the deduction for state and local taxes. Republicans want to get rid of that, say that it's a de facto subsidy to taxpayers in high-tax states from taxpayers in low-tax states. But let me get you to react to the criticism that you're hearing from some people on the right, especially the members from the states that will get hit most hardly by this who say that this is essentially tantamount to double taxation and the people really here are being taxed on income that they don't really have because they've already paid it out. How do you well, react to that? Well, it's half true and half false. First of all, there's no question that the initial charge is correct, which is if you have no income tax and, you, and small property taxes, you get very little by way of this particular deduction, which means that other states are picking it up. So there's no question about that. The other thing about the high income states, however, which makes it more complicated, is the These are states which are much more generous with their transfer payments of one sort or another. Uh, So if it turned out, which is not the case, that everything that you put into the tax package at the local government gave you some degree of return benefits, uh, then in effect, you've already gotten the particular benefits for the services in question. And at that particular point, I mean, I think it's perfectly correct to say that we don't want to be in a position of giving you a break because you've got all these high taxes and high services. But many of these people, in fact, also find themselves in a position where they're paying high taxes for which they get no return benefit. Uh, So if it turns out you have a rich person who pays $100,000 in state taxes and half of it gives them return benefits, okay, that's fine, tax that. Uh, But if they're giving $50,000 away and it's being taken for somebody else, then what you're doing is you're taxing them on wealth that they've never received. And so the question is, do you try to take that into account in the system? And it's very difficult to do so. My own reaction is to tough it out and to say we will eliminate those kinds of excess water in these systems if, in fact, when we deny the deductions, it's going to put pressures on the state to lower their kind of transfer payment system so as to be able to keep the rich people in them. One of the things that's quite clear, and it's evidence for the GOP view on incentives, is there's been a very marked shift in the United States of people with substantial means away from uh, states with high taxes. So recently, Maryland raised its individual tax rate, and they lost something like three-fourths of the people that they had who had million-dollar incomes and so forth, because people respond to this kind of change. And it's not the only reason why they move, but it's certainly a big one. And therefore, once you understand all of this, I think what will happen is if you're tough on this, what you will find out is that the states will reduce the size of their transfer payments to keep their wealthier individuals. 
Now, it turns out, I gather the bill is drafted in a very complicated way. I was talking to some of my NYU colleagues today, and they said to me, it's just not even clear as to which particular people get these benefits and which not. Does it go to partnerships? Does it go to firms? Does it go to individuals? Does it go to retirees? And one of the things about this kind of provision is you have to draft it exactly right. Otherwise, you find yourself in litigation, and the litigation that you find yourself in will mean that you're going to have billions of dollars shift this way or that way, depending on how a court construes an ambiguous provision. So the advice that I would give to the Republicans, not that they've asked, is concentrate at this particular point in time on the rate issues, which are relatively clear to deal with, because it just means changing a number here or there, and spend relatively little time, at least at the moment, trying to deal with these complicated questions of how it is that you work, a change in the deduction system or the income system. You don't want to put yourself into the position where you make changes that you will come to reject or regret. So what you want to do is to slow down that part of the process while you move on the rate thing. And the other advantage of moving on rates is it's easy to bargain over that. Uh, so the Democrats are screaming about the fact that it only goes to rich people. All right, we can change it a little bit. We can make it 22%. They complain that it's going to be too heavy on the deficit. They may be right. They may be wrong. Okay, we'll change it to 24%. You can bargain over numbers much more than you, easily than you could bargain over structures. So the last thing that I will ask you, there is a sort of undercovered provision in here, which you wrote about recently in The Hill. It would tax the investment income of university endowments at 1.4%, not for all schools, but for those whose endowments equal more than $100,000 per student. This general idea, if not this specific policy, that your major universities are actually sitting on too much money has gained a fair amount of purchase in the last couple of years. It's been a big focus of Malcolm Gladwell's, for instance. Uh, but you're cold to this well, idea. Well, I mean, tell us why. you have to figure out what it is that universities are doing in supply. And let's just break it into two halves. First of all, there's always the tuition half, which is moving more rapidly than inflation. But that's a meaningless figure taken in isolation. What you always have to do is to ask the question exactly what bundle of goods and services are they supplying you with? And in addition, you have to ask what income enhancement is giving to these particular students. And the third thing you have to ask is how much of the tuition increase is plowed back into poorer students in the form of scholarships. And so when you run all of those thoughts, things together again, simply saying that tuition is going up in isolation of these other things has a very crude estimation understanding about the ways in which these businesses work. And so you don't want to do it that way. The second thing is great research universities are research institutions. And, you know, it's not all that expensive to educate an undergraduate. But if you take those universities that have high fractions of graduate students, Harvard, Stanford, Chicago, Columbia, and so forth, you get a graduate student and you have to pay a lot of money. And if they are graduate students who are working in the physical or the biological sciences, you have to equip them in ways that could cost you tens of thousands of dollars a year. Are they going to be working on projects with faculty members, which are very, very complicated, and they will get credits for scholarship and so forth? So you don't want to simply treat the university as though it's a tuition situation. You think of this as the major research arm. 
Now, what is it about this research which is so characteristic? Well, it turns out in the sciences, the biological sciences, physical sciences, most of it comes out in the form of a public good. You increase the basic knowledge, and the model is once that knowledge is increased, then individuals can figure out how to build up startup companies around that knowledge. Um, much of this information is not patented, and it's easy to use. But interestingly enough, certain kinds of ideas, if they're left in the common, get underutilized because too many people can use them, and everybody's afraid that they'll pre preempt it. There's a statute known as Bayh-Dole from about 1980, which says, please patent this stuff if you want to, because we think it will increase enhancement. Well, once you understand that the great universities are doing these sorts of things, then what you have to do is to ask a very hard question. Why do you want to start picking away at this income? Um, there are other ways to deal with them. I mean, one of the things you can do is you could simply reduce the size of government grants if you think that's appropriate. And that doesn't involve the creation of a new tax system with a new code, new compliance rules and so forth. And another thing that you should do for the university is to forget about all this. You want to lower the cost of having them to deal with students. Remember that the compliance budgets in great universities now is a huge number, roughly equal, I think, uh, to about the amount of the voluntary contributions it gets from alumni. And some of this is on student stuff with the sex discrimination rules and the harassment rules. Some of it is on things like animal care. Other things are budgetary compliance and so forth. And you will get more efficient universities if you handle that. And the last point I want to make is I think this is clearly political. Uh, the Trump administration is appalled, as am I on some occasions, at some of the excesses of race and gender politics inside universities. And this is a way of kind of slapping liberal institutions for misbehaving. But got to remember, not all institutions behave that way. And most of the work done in these institutions is not done by the gender studies department. It's done by physics. It's done by chemistry. It's done by biology. It's done by medicine and so forth. That's where the real money is. And you start messing around with these kinds of departments, uh, you can really change the flow of students going into our economy. And you can really change the amount of inventive material that comes out of these universities. I just don't think it's worth the risk for the piddling dollars that are involved to create a new tax program. And you can just take out that 1.4 and next year put in 2.8. And all of a sudden, you have a major problem instead of a minor problem. So the rule with respect to new taxes is never start them. Because once you start them, the change in numbers is a very, very difficult thing to remove. And the Republicans have no business introducing new taxes. You want to reduce the number of taxes, simplify the brackets, and sort of broaden the base a little bit. But the last thing you want to do is to tax institutions uh, in one way when you're subsidizing them through a whole variety of other programs. Uh, keep the subsidies in place, change them if you want to, but stay away from that taxation. And certainly you don't want to create differentials based upon wealth, which is the worst kind of insidious stuff. Too much progressivity, too much populism in that particular proposal. All right. Thank you, Richard, and thank you to our listeners. Remember, you can follow Richard on Twitter. That's at Richard A. Epstein. You can read his weekly column, The Libertarian, by visiting Defining Ideas at hoover.org. And you can help us out by rating the show on iTunes. We'll be back with you soon. For Richard Epstein, I'm Troy Sinek. Thanks for listening. This podcast has been a production of the Hoover Institution. For more information about our work, please visit hoover.org.